Good morning. I'd like to uh, invite you, if you would, to turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And as you are locating that text around verse 21, I invite you to bow your heads with me for just a moment. Lord Jesus, uh, we do thank you for uh, time that we can be together in uh, a place like this where we can not only experience your presence, but where we can be in the presence of our brothers and sisters. Thank you for the challenges and opportunities that that presents to us. Thank you for the way that your spirit is at work in and through uh, us and each other. And we ask that over uh, this time of being in your word, that you would deepen our capacity to love you and to love each other to do that for the glory of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. So I want to look at just a handful of verses, Matthew chapter 5, and we are going to do a couple of things with these verses. We're going to see where they set in their larger context, and then we're also going to dial in and see uh, what they say in some fine detail. So whenever you're doing Bible study, those are the two moves that you want to make. You move outward, what is the large context of these verses, and then you move inward, what are the details that we see here. So uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus is speaking, and he says, you have heard that the law of Moses says, do not murder, and if you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the high council. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. So if you are standing before the altar in the temple, in other words, if you have come to worship, offering a sacrifice to God, and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there beside the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. And Jesus says, come to terms quickly with your enemy before it is too late. And you are dragged into court, handed over to an officer, and thrown into jail. I assure you, he says, that you won't be free again until you have paid the last penny. We ask God to bless this reading, his holy and inspired word. This morning, uh, we are combining two steps in order for the calendar to work for us. Uh, we uh, recognize that we needed to put a couple of steps together, and so steps eight and nine uh, are going to be combined today. And so step eight is this. Step eight is we made a list of all persons that we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. So step eight is to make a list of all the persons that we had harmed, and we become willing to make amends to them all. And step nine, then, is we made direct amends to such people, except when to do so would injure them or others. So the first one is we make the list of all the people that we have injured, all the people we have harmed. The second one, step nine, is we go and we make amends. 
for those injuries and harms. Now, uh, if you're just joining us here, step eight and nine, you're saying, where, where, where does that fit? What's that about? Uh, here we have been making our way through a series on the 12 steps of recovery. We've been talking about a discipleship journey towards wholeness through these 12 steps. And we've been saying, uh, as Mary Beth uh, mentioned earlier, that this is not just a uh, recovery program for those who are addicted to drugs or alcohol. That isn't the only addiction that we're talking about. But we've been talking primarily about a universal addiction, a sin addiction, that is an addiction to control, that we are universally addicted to control. And that universal addiction to control manifests itself in almost as many creative ways as there are people in the world. So that's what we've been saying, that we are universally addicted to control. Control, self-centeredness, I want to run my life, is a universal addiction. If we're going to become a disciple of Jesus, we're going to be a follower of Jesus, we need to have a, a plan. We need to have a response to take that on. And this set of steps is a discipleship process that has produced freedom from that control addiction. And it's also a process that can help us to get through uh, the denial that speaks up whenever somebody says you're an addict, you're a control addict, and the little voice in your head says, no, I'm not, no, I'm not, no, I'm not. That's denial. And the 12 steps of recovery have the capacity to break through that denial. One writer uh, says that uh, the 12 steps act as spiritual disciplines, that they are spiritual practices, and that these spiritual practices put us in a position to receive God's grace. So we were doing these spiritual practices that in themselves don't have power, but they put us into a position where we experience and receive God's grace that does have power. So we experience God's grace. And as we've been uh, on this journey through the steps, uh, our prayer, of course, uh, is that you've experienced some degree, some measure of that healing grace of God's presence in your life. But often when we talk about things like spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices, the way that most of us think about that, the, um, uh, it, it tends to be something that we, that we equate with something that's very personal, something that's very private, something that's very interior. We think about what's happening in my own personal spiritual practice, my own spiritual discipline. And so we think about things like what? Prayer, uh, uh, morning quiet time, maybe where we read a devotion or a passage of scripture. We pray about it. We have prayer requests that we think about. Uh, maybe uh, 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 you think about things like um, fasting, maybe journaling. Maybe you have a spiritual time of worship where you have some music that you like to listen to and you put that on in your house or uh, uh, in your car, and that's a, that's a spiritual practice. It's a spiritual discipline. Uh, maybe uh, uh, you have a discipline of, of giving, a discipline of tithing. All the things that, that, that you have taken on that help you to be in a position to experience God's grace. And for the, for the first uh, seven steps that we've been working on, 
we've mostly been working in that interior space. We've mostly been working on uh, what needs to happen in me to surrender. What's happening in my spirit to surrender to God and to give God control of my life again. And now, though, with steps eight and nine, we're beginning to turn outward. It's an outward turn. And we encounter a discipline, a new spiritual discipline, which is, um, interestingly, absent from most lists and catalogs of spiritual disciplines. But it's a spiritual discipline that puts us into contact with others whom we have wronged. That that's a spiritual discipline. It's a spiritual practice that puts us into contact, into the presence of God's grace. And I want to say that there's deep wisdom here. That, that the, 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 the architects of the, the 12 steps were, were in touch with some deep biblical wisdom when they designed that step. Because what's true is that our own inner experience of grace and our own inner experience of healing and our own inner experience of transformation and restoration will never exceed the experience of grace and healing and restoration that we move towards in our external relationships. It will never exceed that. And so we read in John things like, uh, it is impossible to say that I love God, but I hate my brother. It's impossible. And, and we want to say, but no, 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 you don't know my brother. <laughs> right? But God is so good, right? I love God, but my brother keeps hurting me. And I mean, you don't, you don't know. And what John is saying, what the Bible is saying, what Jesus is saying is, no, no, no. It's not possible. The, the hatred that you have for your brother, the brokenness that you have with one another, will always impair your ability to love God. You cannot love God more than you love each other. You can't do it. And if you say, no, 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 I can do it, then, then John comes along and says, well, that's denial. That's the control addiction speaking. That's denial. And so what we want to do today is look at this text in a way that helps us to get past that denial and helps us to begin to practice the spiritual discipline, the external, outward spiritual discipline of making amends with those that we have wronged. So what we see here uh, in this text uh, is that it's set uh, right at the uh, outset of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount. It's a collection of all of Jesus' teachings gathered together uh, about the kingdom of God. And what Jesus is saying is, look, do you want to know what life is, is like under God's reign? Do you want to know the character of God? If God was in charge of the kingdom that you lived in, of the nation that you lived in, what would it be characterized by? And he says, let me tell you, let me show you some things that God's kingdom, God's rule, God's reign would be about. So the Sermon on the Mount is all about God's reign, God's kingdom, what it's like to live under God's rule, his authority. Uh, within his character. And it's about God's kingdom. And so therefore, in verse 20, he says it's also about righteousness. Uh, living in God's kingdom, uh, God's kingdom, if you, have, if you have to pick one characteristic, it's about righteousness. 
So this is what he says in verse 20, just before the text that we read. He says, but I warn you, unless you obey God better than the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, in other words, unless, unless you have moral perfection, unless you obey God better than the teachers, better than the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, uh, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven at all. So there it is, the kingdom of heaven and the requirement of righteousness. So it has to be greater than that. Now, in the time of Jesus, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees that Jesus is talking about here, these were sort of the Jewish rock stars of righteousness. Right? There is nobody in the world that was thinking more about and more concerned with moral purity, uh, with right living, with justice. There's, there's nobody who was more concerned about righteousness than the Pharisees. They were, they were the ones who woke up in the morning, thought about it all day long, worked on it all day long, and went to bed thinking about it. That was the Pharisee. And now Jesus is coming to just ordinary people, people who have normal jobs, who get up and think about other things. He's saying, normal people, you look at the Pharisees and you say, oh my goodness, what a standard of righteousness they have. Jesus said, if you want to be in my kingdom, if you want to be in my kingdom, your righteousness has to be even better than that. You have to be more concerned with moral purity. You have to be more concerned with justice. You have to be more concerned with doing what is right than they are. So everybody takes a deep breath. In the very next section, he says, this is what that looks like. Very next section, he says, this is what it looks like. He said, and then the next section, in the next seven sections, the next seven topics that Jesus is going to discuss in the sermon about the kingdom, which is therefore about righteousness, and a righteousness that needs to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. The next seven topics that he's going to discuss are all about relationships. Seven topics about relationships. What he's saying is, look, uh, if you want to have a, uh, a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the, the scribes and the Pharisees, the experts at righteousness, then you have to turn your attention to the way that you relate to each other. You have to turn your uh, attention to how you treat one another. How you treat each other is a matter of righteousness. It's a matter of life in God's kingdom. Now, when we uh, start talking about making amends, uh, when we talk about restoring relationships to rightness, to righteousness, um, some of us are, are thinking already, um, I don't even know where I would begin with that. I don't, even, I don't understand what you're asking me to do. You know, we've done sermons about loving your enemies and seeking forgiveness and offering forgiveness. We've, we've, done, we've done talks about all of those things. And there's, an, there's inevitably a swath of people who are just baffled by that. And the bafflement is not, where would I start? There are so many of them. The bafflement is, I don't have any enemies. My relationships are all working well. Uh, there's nothing in my relationship system that seems out of place or disordered or, or broken. I'm, I'm perfectly content with all of my relationships. Why would I want to wade in and stir up problems where there are no problems? Uh, you haven't even convinced me yet uh, that I'm an addict, addict and that the 12 steps are uh, as much about discipleship as they are about recovery. So I don't know why I would take on this idea of making amends. 
Verse uh, 21 and 22 uh, are going to help us to see what the righteousness requirement of God's kingdom really is all about. And they're going to take us beyond what we might say is an excellent standard of relationships. In other words, I might be satisfied with the excellent standard of relationships that I currently enjoy. And Jesus is going to come and say, right. And what I want you to know is that if you want life in my kingdom, here's the standard. Do you hear the difference? Jesus is saying, do you understand that what you say is excellent, what the scribes and the Pharisees say is excellent, isn't the standard. Here's the standard. Here's what I want you to see. He's going to go beyond what we think is already excellent, what we think is already good. So look at what he does. First of all, in verse 21, he says, uh, you have heard that it was said to people long ago. He said, uh, you know, uh, do not murder, and anyone who murders is going to be subject to judgment. So uh, when he says uh, the phrase, you have heard it said, you have heard it said, what is he talking about? Uh, what have you heard? Uh, when, he say, when he says you have heard, what he's not referring to is the Old Testament. He's not referring to the Old Testament scriptures. Because when, whenever Jesus refers to the Old Testament scriptures, what, Jesus is, what, what he says is, it is written. Right? When Jesus is talking about the scriptures, he says it is written. It is written. When he says you have heard, he's talking about something different. You have heard uh, corresponds to what the teachers of the law say, the New Testament says. So what he's talking about is not the, what, the, what the text says, it is written. He's talking about what the teachers have said about the Old Testament. And so he says, whenever, uh, you, um, uh, whenever you see that, you're, you're getting access to what your current excellent standard is. And the current excellent standard that the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, who are reading the Old Testament... This is what they say. As long as you haven't harmed somebody physically, right? As long as you haven't taken somebody out of the picture, then you're good on this commandment. That's, the, that's, the, what, that's what you have heard, as long as you have not killed. But then Jesus goes on, he says, but no. But that, that's not what the actual text says. That's not what is written. He said, it, it isn't just a, a standard of don't kill somebody. Don't physically take somebody out. What he says is... Um, when you read the negative or the prohibitive form in the text, thou shalt not, included in that is a requirement to do the positive version of it. It's in the Old Testament. You don't have to go to the New Testament to see that. Jesus is saying, thou shalt not, there's a negative, and embedded in and living in and carried along with and required by the negative is the positive. So in the Old Testament, we see versions of this all over the place. Jesus, uh, in the Old Testament, uh, it says, thou shalt not steal. And when God says, thou shalt not steal, what that means is, not only should you not take things that don't belong to you, but it also means the positive, thou shalt be generous. And so in the Old Testament, uh, over and over again, you see the prophets saying, look, you've stolen from God. What does that mean? That you haven't been generous. So a lack of generosity is the same thing as stealing. A lack of doing the positive is a violation of the negative. Thou shalt not steal is the same thing as you must be generous. And if you're not generous, 
you're stealing. And so in the same way, Jesus comes along here and he says, you shall not murder. And he said what that means is that the positive is included in that as well. It isn't just don't take somebody's life. But he says, thou shalt not murder means every single human being is a precious uh, uh, creation, a, a precious, uh, infinitely valuable creation made in God's image, made in God's likeness. And therefore, because every human being is God's image bearer, uh, you can't ever use another human being. You can never treat another human being as an object or a thing or something that uh, becomes a means to your ends. You can't ever do that. And so he's going to go through and he's going to explain in, in great detail what it means to do, not just avoiding the negative, but taking on the positive. And so this is what he says. He says, you've broken this law. You've broken the law, thou shalt not murder. Not only if you've taken somebody's life physically, but he goes on, he says, if you've done any of these things. Number one, he says, if you treat somebody as raka, R-A-C-A, raka. Uh, that's the, that's the, uh, it's all in verse 22. Um, it's translated in our, in our um, version as idiot. If you, if you call somebody raka, raka literally means uh, you're a nobody. If, if you call somebody a nobody, you're a non-person. You're nothing. You don't matter. Now, why would Jesus be doing that? You know, if you're mad at somebody, if you're angry at somebody, you don't usually say to them, uh, you're a nobody. You're a raka. If you're, if you're mad at somebody, if you're angry at somebody, you call them an idiot, you call them a, you use the other words that Jesus is using. You have other things that you say, but you don't say, oh, you're a nobody. When, when, when you call somebody a nobody, what you're saying is not, I'm angry at you, but what you're saying is, I'm indifferent towards you. I'm indifferent towards you. Jesus is not talking about hostility. He's talking about indifference. And that gets a little bit more scary, doesn't it? And that opens up a whole new world of things that go wrong in places uh, of relationship, and the places in relationships where I need to seek amends. See, he's not just talking about what I did do, but now he's talking about the things that I didn't do that I should have done. And I need to make amends for those as well. He's not saying, uh, you break the commandment, thou shalt not murder, only if you're malicious towards somebody. He's saying, if you neglect somebody, if you avoid somebody, if you look through somebody, if you don't care about somebody, if you treat a person as though they aren't there, you've broken this commandment. Indifference, he says, is the basic uh, kernels, the seed form of hatred. Then he goes on, he says, if you say to somebody, you moron. And that's literally what he says. Uh, if, you, uh, if you curse at somebody, uh, at the end of verse 22, if you curse at somebody, the word there is moros in Greek, and we speak Greek to each other and use the word moron all the time. Moron. And what it, it literally, it's translated as idiot, and it means you fool. It means somebody who is incompetent, incapable, Unable. And what Jesus is saying here is, is, look, there's incredible power in what we say to, to each other. There's incredible power in what we say about each other. And so to murder somebody includes murdering their reputation. If we talk about somebody and say, that moron, that idiot, that fool, that incapable, uh, 
incompetent individual. We murder their reputation. But even more so, if we say to somebody, you're a moron, you're a fool, you're an idiot. If we say that to somebody, we've also murdered them because we've murdered their confidence in themselves. Okay? What Jesus is saying is, look, uh, why would you say uh, uh, you moron to somebody unless you wanted them to believe that about themselves? Unless you really wanted them to believe that they were incapable. And if you can, if you can get somebody to believe that, if you can get somebody to believe that about themselves, you've put a dagger into their heart. To murder somebody is to murder their reputation, but to murder somebody is also to murder their confidence in themselves. And if you can just sit with that idea for a few minutes, think of all the ways that we murder somebody's confidence in themselves, that we just undermine their confidence in themselves, that we just whittle away their sense of being this infinitely precious creature in God's image. Think of all the ways that we, that we swoop in Maybe ways that we're overprotective of somebody. Think about the helicopter parenting scenarios. Think about worrying about somebody. Think about enabling somebody. Think about any time we convey the message, I don't think you can do this. I don't think you're up to it. I need to intervene on your behalf. We murder their confidence in themselves. So Jesus says, you violated this command. Thou shalt not murder. If, if you are indifferent towards somebody, you don't care. You violated the command uh, if you undermine somebody's confidence, confidence in themselves or if you uh, murder their reputation. That's why gossip is always wrong. It's always wrong. It's a form of murder. But Jesus goes one more step and he says, look, if you're angry with your brother, if you're angry with your brother. Now, he's not talking here uh, in the word uh, for anger. He's not talking here uh, about a, a flare of temper, uh, just the expression of a human emotion. Uh, what he's talking about here instead uh, is uh, harboring a resentment, nursing that anger. He goes so far as to say, if you have resentment against somebody, you're guilty of murder. So, if I am going to have righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, if I am going to have uh, right uh, relationships with people, kingdom-style relationships with people that lead to a place where I can make amends where those relationships have been broken, then this is where Jesus takes us first. Jesus takes us first to the place. He says, if I'm going to have the compassion that is necessary, if I'm going to have the humility that is necessary, if I'm going to have the openness to making amends that is necessary, then I need to see first that I am a murderer. It's the log in my own eye that I will always trip over in my effort to point out the speck in my brother's eye even in the effort to make amends. Unless I can be brought to see it. And moreover, seeing this is absolutely critical 
to our understanding of the biblical doctrine of sin. Right? Uh, th- this, this, is the, this is the doctrine of sin. It's saying, look, here's an acorn. Right? And if you can imagine an acorn, you look at the acorn and you look at that, you say, there, it's all in there. The tree is in there. The entire tree is in that acorn. It's all, so murder, mass murder, is in that acorn of resentment. It's all in there. Right? What, what is a mass murder? What is it? Right? It's an acorn of resentment that got fertilized, it got watered, and it got placed into a context where it could germinate. So when Paul says, I'm, I'm the, Paul, Paul says it, right? The man who wrote the majority of the New, the New Testament. He says, I'm the chief of sinners. What does he mean by that? He, he doesn't mean that uh, in, the, in the world that he's living in that there are no murderers or, or thieves or uh, you know, people who are doing all kinds of horrific and horrendous things. He, he lives in a world of violence and, and corruption, and he can still say, I'm the chief of sinners. Why? Because he sees that that acorn is in him. He can see that it's all in him. It's all there. Everything that makes a murderer a murderer is in my heart, he says. So Jesus is saying, look, are you a murderer? Yes. You are a murderer if you harbor grudges. Are you a murderer? Yes. If you, you're a murderer if you're indifferent towards people. You're a murderer if you gossip. You're a murderer if you uh, lash out in spite. Pause again. So, well, I can't live up to that standard. I, I can't live like that. I, I don't know how to stop that. And if you can see that, then you can see your addiction. If you can see that you can't live up to that standard on your own, then you can see your addiction. And if you can see your addiction, then you can see what the law is designed to do in your life. You can see that the law is coming to you and saying, look, I can show you how you should live, but I can't give you the power to do it. I can show you what you need to do, but I can't help you to do it. And so all I can do is bring you to the mirror. And, and, and the, the, the Bible says the law of Moses here is just like a mirror. It tells me what is required. It tells me what God's character demands. It tells me what righteousness looks like. But it can't, it can't fix anything, right? The law says I can show you how to live, but I can't give you the power to do it. How do I get the power to do it? I get the power this way. I, I come and I say, Lord Jesus, I can't do this. But I know that you died for me and you paid the penalty for my failure. And I know that you lived for me and you lived the perfectly righteous life that I'm incapable of living and that you give to me all of that righteousness. Lord, I can't do it. I can only do it as I receive you and accept you. That's our hope. That's where freedom is. Jesus brilliantly brings us to that place of surrender. 
surrender before the law, before the requirements of righteousness, before the realization that we can't do it. And he goes on, he says one more thing. We're going to do this very quickly. He says one more thing. It isn't enough just to stop gossiping. It isn't enough to just stop calling people morons or idiots. It isn't enough to stop resenting. It isn't enough to stop being indifferent. But it's to recognize that when those things have happened, that it's created an impact in people's lives. That people have been wounded. People have... People have been hurt and harmed by the lack of that or the presence of that activity. So it's not just enough to stop it. Jesus, if you just stop it, you're still disobeying the requirement of the law. The requirement is not just to stop it, but the, the requirement is to notice the impact, notice the brokenness, notice the, the debris that has been caused, and to move in and to do what I can do to repair it, to restore relationship. Your job is to reconcile relationships as much as it depends on you. And so you might say, okay, well, if I know that somebody has something against me, I'll go to that person and deal with it. And Jesus says, yes, that's, that's this text in, in Matthew 5. But a little bit later on in Matthew 18, he reverses it. And he says, if, some, if you have something against them, then you should go to them. So in both cases, he puts the responsibility on you. If they have something against you and you know it, you go to them. If you have something against them and they know it or not, you go to them. Both cases. It doesn't matter where it starts. He says your responsibility is to go. You say, well, that's not fair. When do they have to go? That's your control addiction talking. Jesus is saying it's your responsibility. Why? Because that's the rhythm of grace. Right? The rhythm of grace is I receive God's grace. I experience this encounter with Jesus where I, where I uh, experience grace and healing internally. I begin to show that to somebody else. I share that grace and restoration with another. And in the process of sharing that grace and restoration with another, I recognize another place where, where I need healing and I need to be restored. And, and I see something in me that I hadn't previously seen. I go back to Jesus and I receive grace and healing and restoration. And I share that. In the process of sharing that, I see another place that I didn't see before. And I go back to Jesus and I live that way. Not just so that I can experience grace in me, but so that we live in the kingdom of grace. That grace permeates relationships throughout God's kingdom. That the way that we be together is graceful. That's what it means to live by grace. And so uh, Luke 19 uh, tells a story that uh, whenever, whenever um, we start talking about making amends, my guess is that somebody here was thinking about this story already. Uh, this is the story of Zacchaeus. Right? This is, this is the, he's the, the biblical uh, patron saint of making amends. What happens in Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus is a tax collector. He's a Hebrew person. Uh, and he has sold out his own people. Uh, he he uh, uh, is embezzling uh, tax money from his people so that he can have favor with the Romans and so that he can get rich. He's utterly scorned. He's rejected. Uh, nobody likes his character. Nobody likes him. Nobody trusts him. And yet he wants to see Jesus. And so he climbs up in the tree. Jesus comes by. And what does Jesus do? 
he shows tons of grace to Zacchaeus. The guy that everybody else had ignored, everybody else had turned away from, everybody else scorned. Jesus is right there showing tons and tons and tons of grace. And Zacchaeus responds to that grace, not just internally, but externally. What does he do? He says this. He says, uh, Lord, half of my possessions I'm just going to give away. I'll just, I'm just going to give half of everything away. And he says, uh, not only that, but uh, if I have extorted anything from anybody, right, if I've done this, uh, then I'm going to pay it back four times. I'm going to pay it back with interest. Personal grace becomes a community of grace. So just a couple of practical things. Number one, this is step eight and nine, not step one. Right? Step eight and nine, not step one. This is not the beginning. Um, my encouragement to you is begin at the beginning. Begin uh, with surrender. Uh, not here. But get here. Uh, the second thing I want to say is that if you do this, you are not trying to convince somebody else that you have changed. Right? Zacchaeus isn't running around uh, with his happiness depending on whether or not all of his friends and neighbors and family members believe that he's a different person or not. He is a different person. He's acting as a different person. But he's not trying to convince people that he's a different person. And the third thing I want to say is this. This is not... Um, an effort to get a, an apology uh, or a response from anybody else. The effort here is not to say, well, I'm going to go in and say that I'm sorry because what I really want to hear is that person tell me that they're sorry. And if I do it, maybe it will open up the space for me to get what I want. Uh, this is not an effort to manipulate somebody else into giving you what you need. What it is, is an invitation to a practice of graceful amends as a spiritual discipline that allows us to step into a rhythm of grace for ourselves and for our community. Would you pray with me, please? Lord God, as we um, spend some time reflecting on what your law and character, what your standard of righteousness actually requires of us. And it becomes apparent really quickly that not only do we fall short of it, but we fall short of it in ways that harm other people. Lord, maybe some of us are getting a, a glimpse of our indifference, of our neglect. Some of us are giving, getting a glimpse of ways that our overprotectiveness has actually undermined somebody. Some of us are getting a glimpse of ways that our, um, our self-centeredness has led to uh, a withdrawal from or abandonment of relationships. Lord, there are all sorts of ways that we harm each other. Help us to see that first of all. And then having seen that and having been in the presence of your gracious healing spirit, Give us the courage and the strength to make some beginning steps towards amends. Lord, our prayer is that this is a community of grace.
not perfection. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.